each other way too seriously. <laughs> or you do it too long or something. This is when I'm supposed to be yelling, man. We got to get to that. No, I'm so glad that you're, so glad you're here tonight. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, I guess I sound like a broken record every night. I want to just, just say how cool I think you guys are, man. Uh, I really do. I... I, I think this is one of the most unique churches that I know anything about, and uh, and I, I love this place. And uh, and you know what? I don't I don't know if you need me to say this. I feel compelled to to say it. You know, uh, and I won't belabor this point. A lot of you don't you know you don't know me. And thanks for coming out, man, and following the lead of your pastor. But. Uh, you know, for those of you that were around back in the day, you know, when, when I was here, you know, I, I can tell you this. You know, I've, I've been gone now for, wow, six and a half years. And uh, to this day, I don't, I don't quite understand what that was all about, you know? I, I, it's not like, you know, I wake up every day and go, and there's the reason. But I do know this. I, I believe this with all my heart. I, don't, I think you know I would not say this to you if it wasn't from my heart. I believe, I don't know why God took me away, but I do believe that God brought Jeff Bartell to First Baptist Church. Amen. And, and, and uh, I, I just saw Erla just a minute ago. There you are. And Erla. I, I don't want to slight you in any way. Um, and it's good to see you, Erla. We haven't had a chance to talk this week, but hey, how you doing? Yeah, okay, well, cool. How the kids? All right, yeah, okay. But for real, I, uh, and, and, and I think that was just confirmed to me even again, uh, just being in the morning sessions. I, I, you know what? I, I think the vision that God has placed on his heart for this place it's it's deeper it's richer than anything that we had in the day and we had a great we had a great run and it was cool and that was that okay and it's a new day and uh and again uh whoo gonna get a little choked up thanks for letting me have the privilege to come back and uh do what I, I, I do, and yeah, you guys are so, so gracious. But we're, we're here this week to talk about holiness. And, you know, everybody's got their cute little title. I, I really do believe it's gotten so jacked up in the last days. And it is such a travesty. <laughs> really, it is. Because we are the church of Jesus Christ. I, I know you know this, but the church is the called out assembly. We've been called out of the world. Amen. That's, what, that's what we're here to talk about, is the church just being the church. That's just living out what it means to be a part of the church, the body and the bride of Jesus Christ and, and the call of God upon our lives as we started talking about on Sunday is to be holy as he is holy. The standard's way up there, y'all. Okay, only be as holy as he is. Okay, once you get there, you're good. I, I, and listen, the New Testament finds a zillion ways to say that. I, and I, I think I said that on Monday or Sunday that we'd probably look at all zillion, and we pretty much looked at all zillion of those. One that I haven't mentioned, just so we can get them all in there, is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. And what he tells us is that this book of the Bible, the book of 1 John, one of the reasons that it was written was so that we would stop sinning. <laughs> These things have I written unto you that you sin not. In other words, hey, that sin thing, stop it. <laughs> okay. 
And, and that should be the response of God's people. Because we are the called out assembly. Okay, so let's just quickly hit what we've been talking about. We, we've been talking about the top six reasons. The first one we saw was that we've lost sight of God's holiness. And again, I, I think that is the issue of all issues. And by the time we get to the end tonight, I think we will have come full circle on that. I think you'll see what I mean in about two hours from now. <laughs> Number two, we, we've missed the point of salvation. And, and you know, and we can say this any way that you want to, but I, I think that what we've got to get out of our minds is the fact that, you know, we, we've, I, I think we've had drilled into us somehow through 21st century Christianity, we've had drilled into us that what God wants to do is take us to his home when we die. And the message of the New Testament is God wants to make us his home while we live. He's been looking for a place for his name to dwell. A place where he can be settled and he can radiate his glory and we are that people and that's what salvation is. I don't have time to review this, y'all. Don't make me do that. Number three, we, we've forgotten the call of separation. Number four, we haven't comprehended the magnitude of the Spirit's sealing Last night we talked about we have a skewed view of ourselves. And tonight we're going to be talking about the fact that we don't understand the true nature of confession and repentance. You know, I'm convinced from my own failures in the sin department through the years and, and trying to help others as they work through their sin issues, is that, that the real breakdown comes with what we do with our sin or, or how we deal with our sin. There is a, a biblical way for us to respond to sin in our life this week. Chances are good. I'm, it's, it, this is kind of like, you know, youth camp for adults, okay? I know you guys do it a whole lot cooler. But this is a chance for our, our church family to come under the preaching of the Word. And th what happens at a youth camp is, man, the Word of God is going forth, and it goes forth on a daily basis, and there's just something about, man, just getting a massive dose of the Word of God to start revealing the holiness of Christ, which starts revealing to us ourselves. Okay, so it could be that this week, God has shown you some things, some areas of sinfulness in your life. Okay, now listen. There is a biblical way to respond to that. A, a, a godly response. And there is a non-biblical response, or we could say a worldly response, or we could say it this way, y'all. There is a biblical response that causes us, and I want to make sure that you're hearing this, there is a biblical response that causes us to stop sinning. And there is a response that we think is biblical, and it perpetuates sinning. And I'm convinced that in the 21st century, we think we're responding biblically, but the reason we can't ever get over it, stop it, is it's not biblical. And let, 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 me, let me show you what I'm talking about. I think we all understand that sin of any kind is a blot. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 talks about us as the bride of Christ, not having spot or wrinkle or 
any such thing, but that we should be holy and without blemish. Okay, so when there's a spot, when there's a, a blot, it requires cleansing. And, and again, I think every Christian would agree with that. But now listen, just how that cleansing is obtained is a whole different thing. Because there seems to be a, a contradiction between two places in the Scripture. One of them is 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, which in my estimation is the verse that all of us think is the biblical response to our sinning. I'm just not so sure that it is, y'all. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and then there's 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1. Okay, so now watch this. Watch the apparent contradiction, obviously. We know that there are no contradictions in the Bible. Get into ministry tools and training, and you'll learn about that principle. Very important for you to do that. But 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 says, and again, I know you know the verse, but, but just listen to it with fresh ears. If we confess our sins, what's the next word? Let's say it together. He is faithful and just to forgive us, listen now, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 says, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, and of course, when we read that, we'd have to just stop again and say, okay, what promises? I, I had to pass over this so quickly the other night. Let, let me just take you back into the previous chapter, chapter 6, verses 16 through 18, and just remind you of the promises. Look, look in the middle of verse 16. The promise is that God, the God of the universe, y'all, will dwell in us. Remember, he was been looking for that place for his name to dwell. And in the Old Testament, it was that tabernacle, the forerunner of the temple. And now it's us. Okay, so we've got the promise that the God of the universe will dwell in us. And at the end of verse 16, that the God of the universe will be our God. And sinful people who used to be connected to Satan and his system of evil, that we can become the people of God. What an incredible promise. And the promise in verse 17, that if we will separate ourselves from everything we used to be connected to, and we'll no longer touch all of that uncleanness, that he will receive us. And verse 18, the promise that he will be a father to us. And all of us who used to have Satan as our father, we now have the God of the universe as our father, and we're his sons and his daughters. Okay, then comes 2 Corinthians 7, 1, having therefore these promises, woo! Dearly beloved, let, would you say the next word with me? Let us cleanse ourselves from all unrighteousness, as it were. What he calls here all filthiness of the flesh and spirit and calls us to perfect holiness in the fear of God. And how do we do that? By cleansing ourselves. Okay, so which is it? Do I confess my sin so he can cleanse me? Or do I cleanse myself? And what I'm afraid that most Christians haven't realized is that when you actually put 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 in its context, the point that John is actually making is John is talking about 
our initial owning of sin that resulted in our salvation. And when you put 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 1 in its context, Paul is talking about the ongoing owning of our sin that results in sanctification. You hearing that? And, and while most Christians sin, and they run to 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 for God to cleanse them, I believe what God is saying is, hey, run to 2 Corinthians 7, 1 and cleanse yourself. You know what we found in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9? A little Baptist confessional booth. I'm not trying to diss out anybody that may be here tonight that is from a Catholic persuasion. But hey, you know what we say about the Catholics? Yeah, I know what you guys believe. You guys believe you can do anything you jolly well want to do. Go into your little confessional booth and tell the priest and he tells you how many Hail Marys to pray and, and you're going to go back and do the same thing next week. Hello? That's our first John 1 John 1.9. We're going to confess our little sin and get that little cleansing until we do it the next time. And we have no intention whatsoever of stopping it. We just want to feel cleansed. And man, I'm just so grateful for First John 1. We can go there and do anything we jolly well want to do. And man, we can walk out and don't have to be on a guilt trip. And again, I think we could say that while Christians are piously waiting on the Lord to remove their sin, God is passionately waiting on them to remove their sin. Oh God. Take this sin. And God's saying, I don't want it. You can have it. It's too fat for me. And there's a, that's an old polka, young people. Um, we'll sing that after tonight. There's, there's a chapter in the, the New Testament that's intended to give us clarity about all of this, and it just happens to be this same chapter that tells us to cleanse ourselves. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and specifically in verses 8 through 11. And, and I hope that as we try to work through this passage tonight, man, I, oh, I hope God will give you ears to hear what the Spirit is trying to say to us through this passage, it's a very key passage when it comes to this thing of dealing with our sin biblically. And listen, in the whole subject of us talking about personal holiness, listen, we are going to sin, y'all. And so when we do, we better know how to deal with it biblically because I'm pretty convinced that most Christians don't. They don't know how to deal with it biblically. Now, let me, let me take just a second to give you a, a little bit of the, the context, okay? This won't be boring, so ju just listen for a second. Okay, obviously, we are dealing with the book of 2 Corinthians, meaning that this is the second letter that Paul has written to them. We call that first letter, we call it the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? And in that first letter... Paul had a bunch of stuff that he had to deal with in this carnal church. And man, he's very forthright. And he was not concerning himself whatsoever with being all touchy-feely and making sure that nobody got offended or anything like that. Particularly, 
when he gets to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. As he, he talked about the Corinthians' reaction to a, a, a matter of sin that was going on in that church. It is the craziest thing in the world to me how a church in the first century had actually come to this place of carnality, but there was a, a young man in that church that was having sexual relationships with his father's wife, obviously his stepmother, and the church knew about it. And rather than grieving about it and, and dealing with that sin in their midst, you know what they're doing? They're laughing about it. They go out and, and they're talking to lost people about what's going on. In, <sighs> and so Paul writes to them. And really, I mean, he is so strong. Paul says, listen, I've already made a judgment about that. And when you come together the next time, I suggest that you do the same. And he says, if this guy refuses to be repentant, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Paul says, get him out of there because that leaven in your church is going to permeate the entire church with, he calls it, malice and wickedness, 1 Corinthians 5, 8. Okay, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 8, this is what Paul is referring to when he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, and again that letter was 1 Corinthians, and when the Corinthians read it, it left them sorrowful. So he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. In other words, yeah, when I heard about your reaction, man, it... I felt bad about the things I wrote, but he says, I don't feel bad about it anymore, for I perceive that the same, that the, the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Verse 9, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, I don't get my jollies out of making you feel bad, here's, here's what I'm rejoicing about that you sorrowed to repentance. And listen to this now. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. And here's the key verse, verse 10. Listen very carefully. For godly sorrow worketh, it works to bring about repentance to salvation, okay, deliverance, if you will. Not, you know, what we think of, oh, I got saved. But deliverance, not to be repented of. And he's given us the idea that this perpetual sinning that we do, followed by perpetual confessing of the same exact sin over and over and over and over. Oh, you get the idea? He says, what I'm trying, what I'm rejoicing about is that godly sorrow works repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Okay, so that's the context of 2 Corinthians, but now I want you to notice the contrast that he makes here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verses 8 through 11. Okay, so the, the passage contrasts two different types of sorrow that lead to two different types of repentance that actually leave you at two different places. Okay, and one is worldly sorrow, which of course brings forth worldly repentance. And it ultimately, as he just said, ends in death. Okay, Now that death could be literal, just as in the case of 
of Judas's worldly sorrow, his worldly repentance. It could be the death of a marriage. It could be the death of a relationship, whether the relationship be with your kids, your family, a friend. It could even be the death of, of your spiritual power, your spiritual victory. Okay, that's worldly sorrow. The other is godly sorrow, which of course leads to godly repentance. And it ultimately ends in salvation or it ends in life. It ends in deliverance from sin. Again, so that you don't have to keep repenting of the same sin over and over and over, which again is what most Christians do, which will give you an idea and an indication of what kind of sorrow and repentance they actually have. But now let's talk about these for just a minute because, again, I say grabbing a hold of what this passage actually has to say will change your life because it'll teach you how to deal with sin the way that God wants you to and get you off of that treadmill of worldly or false repentance. Now notice at the end of verse 10 that he calls this false sorrow, he calls it the sorrow of the world. Okay, now just think with me for just a second. What in the world does that mean? Worldly. The sorrow of the, the world. And, and I don't think that there is a way in the world that, there, that he isn't trying to get us to make the connection to that blockbuster statement that he makes in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16 when he talks about the fact that for all... For all that is in, listen now, the world, here it is, three things, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father. Listen, it's not of God. It is not, we could say, godly, but is of the world. And again, he makes the same exact contrast that 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10 makes. And by comparing Scripture with Scripture, what we come away with is there is a sorrow over sin that is generated by the first thing that comprises the world, and that is the lust of the flesh. And it's being sorry... Because of the, the pain you feel in your flesh. In other words, the pain that you brought upon yourself. But the key issue is your pain. And listen, oh my goodness, man, I've sat with them in my office a zillion times. The pain is real and it can be intense. It can be unbearable. And a lot of Christians think that because that's what they're feeling, that it must mean that they're where they're supposed to be in the process of dealing with their sin. But that ain't it. And then next we find that there is a sorrow over sin that's generated by the second thing that comprises the world, and that's the lust of the eyes. And this is being sorry because now you see all of the ways this has affected your life and your world and your kingdom, as it were. In other words, your eyes have been opened to the consequences of your sin. And now... Your wife or your husband doesn't want anything to do with you. Your kids are crushed and bitter. You're going to spend the holidays alone. And you're going to lose your job. But the key issue is your kingdom. The sorrow that you're experiencing is because your kingdom 
is crumbling. And again, a lot of Christians think that because they're experiencing that kind of sorrow, oh, I'm seeing now all the consequences of my sin. And oh, I'm so sorrowful. And I'm so repentant. But that ain't it. And then thirdly, we find that there is a sorrow over sin that's generated by the third thing that he says comprises the world, and that's the pride of life. And this is being sorry because now not only do you see yourself differently, but you understand that others also view you differently. And you're sorry because you've ruined your reputation. But the key is your name. That blot that you put on your name. And yeah, man, there's sorrow involved in that. And again, a lot of Christians think that because they're experiencing that kind of sorrow over that, that, oh, I must be where I'm supposed to be. But again, I say to you, y'all, that ain't it. Listen, do you understand tonight that what we just described there, lost people experience that same kind of sorrow? But do you understand, none of that have, has anything whatsoever to do with God. All three of them have to do with our sorry selves. And to say, we're sorry. It isn't what God intended, y'all. And sad to say, most Christians... Don't ever experience anything other and more than worldly sorrow. And it perpetuates their sin. They wonder why it is that they can't get victory over it. And what the Holy Spirit of God does through Paul in this passage is he's contrasting Worldly sorrow, where the focus is on me, the focus is on self, and he contrasts that now with godly sorrow, where the focus is on whom, y'all? It's on God, and thus, godly sorrow. And in godly sorrow, I'm sorry, listen, not because of the pain I feel, not because of the pain that I brought upon myself, but the pain that I brought upon God. The grief that I caused Him to feel, like we talked about the other night from Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30. And we understand we've grieved God who lives inside of us. But do you see it? The key issue isn't your pain, but God's pain. And when I'm experiencing and I'm expressing godly sorrow, next, I'm sorry, not because of the consequences to my life or my world or my kingdom, but the consequences of my sin and how my sin has affected his kingdom. And the key issue isn't your kingdom, it's God's kingdom. And thirdly, when I'm experiencing, when I'm expressing godly sorrow, I'm sorry, not because of the reproach that I've brought to my name, but the reproach that I've brought to God's name. As Nathan said to David, when David had committed the atrocities that he committed in his life, Nathan looks at him in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 14, and he says to him, because of this deed, you have caused great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 
The issue, David, isn't your sorrow about your sorry self. The issue is you've caused the enemies of God to blaspheme his name and in godly sorrow, y'all, the key issue is, isn't your name, it is God's name. I don't know how your brain works, but I, I will say that for a simple guy like me, that makes all the sense in the world. But I also know that a simple guy like me can also take something as simple as that and find a way to make it hard. <laughs> but how can I know which one I'm actually experiencing when I'm in the big fat middle of that sorrow? How can I really know for sure, Pastor Mark? And I think that God knew that we would be prone to do that. And so if you'll notice, the passage doesn't actually end in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 7. And what God does in verse 11 is he takes all of the guesswork out. And he clears off a little space and he says, okay, let me show you what it looks like when you actually have godly sorrow. And he, what he does here, y'all, yay God, this is so cool. I mean, he gives us a list of seven characteristics of godly sorrow over sin and godly repentance from sin. Okay, you guys have been around the block, right? You, you understand that the number seven in the Bible is the number of completion, it's the number of perfection. And you know what I believe that God's showing us here through these seven things? I think he's showing us what complete repentance and thus perfect repentance actually looks like. And I, I think that's important because this thing of repentance, whether it be ours or Somebody that maybe we're married to that's expressing some kind of sorrow and repentance. How do we know if it's real? I got to tell you, as a pastor of, for a little while, situations arise in, in the church and you're going through, you know, counseling with, with people and, you know, you see all kinds of tears and moaning and groaning and you know and everything within you wants to go yeah that's real and everything within you because you've done it for a little while goes but I'm not sure and it all seems so subjective doesn't it like I don't know if I've, I've got the right kind of sorrow or repentance or not I don't know if this person that I'm discipling or married to or trying to counsel or help or whatever. I don't know where, where they are, okay? Well, what he tells us here is that when there is godly sorrow, it manifests itself seven ways. Okay, so what seemed to be so subjective has gotten very objective. And I want to just make sure that you understand this before we go into it. That this isn't the list of things that God gives you so that you can work these things up. Let me, okay, I want to have godly sorrow and repentance, so what am I supposed to do? Okay. It doesn't work like that. What he's saying is, this is what is present in your life when you don't even know there's a list. The, the bummer is that I'm getting ready to give the list. And we, we should have just talked about this together with the pastor so that we could, okay, here's how we're going to know. Okay, a little inside track there. But hey, what we're talking about this week is coming to the place to where we're actually Living in holiness. And we've got a passage right here that is telling us that with the decisions that we've made this week, 
Here's how we deal with sin from this point on. Some of you have made some incredible decisions in your life this week. Man, God wants you to live in victory. And chances are good because of the habitual nature of what you were probably confessing or dealing with. It may just creep back in and what we've got to learn to do is deal with this thing biblically. And so what he does in this passage, in verse 11, is he says, okay, when godly sorrow and godly repentance is in play, this is the scorecard. This is how it looks every time. All right, now let's, let's read the verse, and then we'll talk about these seven things that he lists here. He says, for behold this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after... A godly sort. In other words, and he's, he's talking about that situation in Corinth. That's why I had to give you the context so that you would understand what the historical aspect is right here. And, and what Paul is saying is, okay, after I faced you with your sin and how you were dealing or not dealing with this sinning brother in your church... He says, I knew what kind of sorrow you were actually expressing because of what I was able to behold in you. There was something I was able to actually look at in your life. I could behold it. I could see it. And here's what it looked like. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge, and would to God that the last sentence in verse 11 could be said of all of our sin. In all of these things, you have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. And wouldn't it be great if we could go from this conference tonight and for the rest of our lives find a way to deal once and for all with sin and be clear before God in the matter of personal holiness. And, and notice that he says here that when our sorrow and thus our repentance is of a godly sort, the first way that it manifests itself is in carefulness. Okay, so what does that mean? Okay, now, I, I get this. This is going to sound overly simplistic, but I think it makes the point. Carefulness is the state of being full of care. That's deep, isn't it? But that's what we're talking about. And the idea here is of being totally on your guard. Being watchful. Now, listen, whereas before, what actually led you into your sin was your spiritual carelessness. Now, you've turned that around when there's godly sorrow and godly repentance. You've turned that around and your life is now characterized by spiritual carefulness. You, you don't go to the same places that you went before. You don't do some of the same things that led to all of that. You're very, very careful. Okay, that's what it looks like. You don't toy with it anymore. Then the second way it manifests itself, that's godly sorrow, is clearing. He says in verse 11, what clearing of yourselves it wrought. In you. Now listen, when godly sorrow is in play, you're no longer making excuses. You're no longer blaming somebody. You're no longer blaming the situation. There's no more rationalizing. I, 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 wish, I, I wish I could tell you some of this stuff that I've heard through the years. This, this guy, yeah, in a high position of leadership in our church. 
Okay, that's as far as I'll go with it. Logging in at the church, watching pornography just about all day for a solid month. And, and he, a, after it was all over, you know, it was only for like four or five weeks. What? <laughs> what is that? What are you saying to me? And again, you, you, the rationalization, the justifying that goes on, or, well, you know, the reason that I did what I did, and, and, and let's don't relegate it to just that pornography issue. Let's re relegate it to us, okay? The reason I did what I did is because well, you know, that situation, the way that whole thing hold, unfolded, wow, it was just like, you know, the perfect storm. And no, that's a bunch of trash. It is worldly sorrow. You're never going to get out of it that way. You know when you're really experiencing godly sorrow, when you want to be clear of that thing and you own it to the max no more hiding no more lying no more covering no more protecting no more manipulating again you own it you want to do everything within your power and you will do everything within your power to clear yourself of it to clear your conscience as Paul said in Acts chapter 24 and verse 16, and herein do I man exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense, totally clear, clear toward God and toward men. And listen, when someone has godly sorrow and godly repentance, man, you're going to know it. And you know what, when it's there, y'all, there's, there's no surprises. I mean, there's nothing that they haven't confessed because they want to totally be clear of this sin. And you know what I've found in worldly sorrow, y'all? And I've dealt with it most of the time is that when there has been some kind of horrific sin situation in someone's life, what I've found is they will confess everything that you already know. But there's a lot more. And if you're confessing what everybody knows, okay, well... You're not really clearing yourself because there's all these other layers under there. In godly sorrow, you totally come clean with all of it because you want to be clear of all of it. The third characteristic of godly sorrow, Paul says, is indignation. Listen, that sin which at one time was so compelling, so inviting, so enticing so exciting so euphoric now the very thought of it repulses you and you're indignant toward it the thought of it angers you then fourth is fear you know i, I always get concerned when i when i hear people who you know, been found out in some kind of a sin, and, you know, this is, this is how it goes, okay? You're never going to go there, so you won't know this, but this is how it goes. I know I'm never going to do that again. Ooh, scares me. I, I'd rather someone say, you know, after what I've done, I want to take every precaution I can possibly take because I am freaked out of my mind of the thought of ever allowing myself to get to the place where I could ever do that again. 
And because you fear that possibility, you know what you do? You take every precaution known to man. When you know that, oh, I'll never do that again, you're not as, not taking as many precautions. And you find yourself in the world of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth, I'll never do that again. Okay, well, take heed, lest you fall. There's fear. And then notice the fifth characteristic of godly sorrow and repentance. And it's not just desire. It's not just strong desire. It's not just great desire. It's not even earnest desire, but listen to this word, vehement desire. Let me ask you something. Can you think of a more powerful adjective to put in front of desire than that? I don't use the word vehement very many times in a year, unless I'm reading 2 Corinthians 7. It produces that, that healthy fear of ever committing that sin again. It produces in you a vehement desire. Just like at one point you had a vehement desire to be involved in the sin, you had that crazy longing or that over-the-top passion to, to involve yourself in that thing. And now you have a crazy longing, you have an over-the-top passion inside of you. You have a vehement desire to stay away from that sin as far away from it as you can possibly get. Which leads to the next thing. The sixth characteristic is zeal. And listen now, zeal is not just inner desire or an inner longing or even an inner passion. Biblically, it is an inner consumption. In Psalm 69 and verse 9, David talked about his zeal. Listen to this, y'all. Eating him up. In Psalm 119, verse 39, he talked about his zeal consuming him. Now, listen. That's what repentance, true, biblical, godly repentance, that's what it looks like, and that's what it feels like. You're consumed with a passion against that sin. And then the seventh characteristic of godly sorrow and repentance. You guys saw that big study sheet and thought we'd be here forever tonight, didn't you? And the seventh characteristic of godly sorrow and repentance is revenge. Man, some powerful words in here. I mean, there, there's, okay, it's done now. You blew it. There's no way to go back and undo the sin. There's no way you can go back and pay back all that was stolen because of it. No way to get even. But listen, when godly sorrow is in play, everything within your being wishes that it could. Listen, people with a, a vengeful spirit, people wanting to get revenge, they're driven. They're on a mission. And usually when we're talking about a vengeful spirit or taking revenge, it's a bad thing. It's a negative thing. It's a harmful thing. It can be a deadly thing. But buddy, listen, when that kind of spirit gets directed toward your sin, it's a good thing. And even above that, it's a godly Thing. Because now you're, you're viewing it and feeling about it the way that God does. And again, that's why this passage calls this godly sorrow and godly repentance. And, and, and I want to make sure that you, you, you grab this. Okay, there's, there's the seven things. 
I, I want to make sure that you understand that these seven things aren't the script that you follow so that you know all of the things that you're trying to work up after you've committed some sin. Yeah, uh, I'm working on number five right now. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I've got the desire to avoid this uh, sin the next time uh, the way that I should because I don't have the vehement desire. So I'm, I'm trying to work up that, uh, what was that little list he was working on there? I've got, I think I've got the, the, the great desire and the earnest desire. I just don't know if I'm into the vehement desire yet. Listen, y'all. Godliness is never found in a list. Listen, this list is just an indicator. Okay, God gives us the list so that we can know whether or not we're sorry we got caught or we're sorry because we have so detracted from God's glory. And 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 11 just tells you what it looks like when you are totally repentant as a result of expressing godly sorrow. Now, now listen, okay. I, I am quite sure, even though you're here on a Wednesday night, Bless your heart. Again, I, it's, it's amazing to me. But be that as it may, there's no telling in the 21st century how many people that are in this room tonight are caught in some kind of trap of sin. And you're on this crazy treadmill of committing sin and Confessing sin and committing sin and confessing sin. Commit. It's a treadmill, man. And, and, and what can happen is you can appease yourself because you're continuously and dutifully confessing your sin. But again, it's the same sin over and over. And, and I'm, I, 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 here's what I fear as a result of tonight. I'm afraid that some of you are going to hear this tonight and you're going to say, Hallelujah to you, man. That's, there's my problem. I haven't been expressing godly sorrow, so man, thanks, Pastor Mark, for that, that, that great message on Wednesday night. Thanks for showing us that list. Now I know what I'm supposed to be shooting for. And, and I'm afraid, listen, that some of us, it's just, it's human nature. Anytime we see a list, okay. And I'm afraid that some of us are going to make the list the goal. We're going to make the list the focal point. And it's not the point. Listen, the reason that we don't have godly sorrow isn't because I didn't know that list existed. The reason that we don't have godly sorrow over our sin is because we don't see our sin the way that God does. And the reason that we don't see our sin the way that God does is because we don't see Him the way that He is. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning. You know where we are now? Right where we started on Sunday morning. The reason that we struggle in this, this area of personal holiness is because we don't see God as holy as he is. And when we see him, remember, remember Isaiah? When he saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filling the temple, and holy, 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 bam! Woe is me. Godly sorrow led to repentance I am a man of unclean lips and what happens he's cleansed and forever changed
the purpose of tonight is to let us know where we really are with this thing of sin. But the focal point has got to be God. Seeking God with all that is within us. I couldn't agree more with Pastor Jeff. I believe this is a church that right now, you're hanging tin on that board, man. And man, if we will just come to the place to where we will be holy as he is holy, I believe the Spirit of God can begin to do something in this place that is absolutely crazy in the best possible way. I ask you, don't you want that? Pastor Jeff.